Well, hey, Anthem, uh, Bert Alcorn here, the lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. Welcome to the teaching portion of Anthem Online and hopefully Anthem with friends. I hope you are gathering together with a few people in a backyard, in a living room or whatever, and not only watching together, but responding together. Here's the plan for today. We just wrapped up our series in Proverbs. It shook us through most of the summertime and it was all around how to live wisely in our exile, in our time and in our place. We wrapped that up last week. If you missed that one or if you missed anyone, I encourage you to go back, uh, look for the podcast wherever you get podcasts or head to our website or app to watch the videos. In just a few weeks, we're going to start in on a new book. We're going to start in on First Peter together, all around how to live holy in exile. I hope you guys are seeing a theme here in what we are trying to do this year between Daniel and Proverbs and First Peter. We're going to kick that off in a few weeks, um, and we're going to kick it off in a few weeks with some pretty big changes to our church. We're going to be talking about more of that soon. Um, but in the meantime, before we kick off Proverbs and after we have wrapped up, uh, before we kick off First Peter and after we have wrapped up Proverbs, we're taking a few weeks to wrestle with a few things together as a church. And particularly this week and next week, what we are working through together is this idea of how to become a non-anxious presence in our city. Now, we can all agree that we are living in a time of great chaos and confusion and just general craziness, and we believe the call of Scripture for the follower of Jesus is to actually not only believe something different, but to actually live a different way, especially in times of chaos and turmoil. So that's what we're going to be doing today and tomorrow, how to become a non-anxious presence in our city. So if you have a Bible or grab your Bible or open up your Bible app to the book of Matthew chapter 14, I want to kick us off with this moment, the story of Jesus, this moment of Jesus with his disciples. Matthew 14, we're going to start in verse 22 and go all the way down to verse 33. Immediately, He made the disciples, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Our world around us is fragile. We think of all the things this year that have been challenged by the coronavirus and whatever other 15 things that have made 2020 crazy. Everything about it has been challenged. Everything about it is fragile. Money and the economy, politics and our political system, 
health and our healthcare system, uh, any other system, schools, sports, any other kind of things we took for granted, the storms are beating against everything we took for granted. And like the disciples in the boat, many of us are terrified. We're confused. We're anxious. In the story, Jesus enters the scene as a non-anxious presence. The disciples, their hope was maybe in the weather calming down or uh, in their boat being able to protect them or their own uh, fishing or boating abilities to sort of get out of this. And the challenge from Jesus is, oh, you little faith. And it's not, that's not like a, it wasn't like a dig. It's more like a, like a, like a dad to a kid, like, oh, little faith, come on. Like the challenge was to trust Jesus, not trust all these other things. And that trust is put to the test again when Peter steps out of the boat onto the water. Peter steps out and has this momentary win. We're like, yes, he gets it. He's trusting Jesus, followed by a really quick fail, right? And Jesus's searing question at the end, why did you doubt me? Why did you not trust me? Why did you transfer your hope and trust from me to something else? And I wonder if God may be asking us the same question right now. Oh, you of little faith, like a dad to a kid, where's your trust? Where's your hope? Why have you transferred your trust in me to something else, your health or your financial standing or whatever? Paul tells the Romans that this hope we have in Jesus will not fail us. And he says, we rejoice in our sufferings in Romans 5, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, which does not put us to shame. And the psalmist preaching to his own soul declares in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord. They will collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Anthem Church, where is your hope? Where are you putting your trust? Are you fearful? Are you anxious? Remember our goal at the beginning of the year. We set out, once again, this was before coronaviruses, before any of this stuff. We set out the beginning of the year to become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit. Notice some of those buzzwords in there. Resilient, faithful, vibrant. I don't know if I would use any of those words to describe the world around us right now. The world around us looks like anxiety, fear, confusion, infighting. Maybe some of those traits we saw with the disciples in the boat we see in the world around us right now. So what I want to do today and next week, I want to talk about how to live differently, how to form some counter habits, How to become a non-anxious present, like Jesus in this storm, that we can be here in our city, in our county. How we can be people of peace in a moment of anxiety. But before we do that, I want to define, I want to spend just a little bit of time defining a little bit of what is making the world around us so anxious. And there are more than what I'm going to share today here, but 
Why I'm honing in on these four that we're going to talk about today is because these are the ones I see particularly Christians falling for in our culture. There's probably a bazillion things we could be talking about, but we're honing in on these four because these are the things that I see, and maybe you see too, Christians falling for all over the place right now. Let me give you these four things up top. We're going to work through them, and then I'm going to end with a moment of encouragement and sort of how do we respond. That's the plan for today. So the four things we're going to be talking about, relativism, cliff noting, cancel culture, and persecution complex. So just a little light work to do here on a Sunday morning. Let's get into it. What is making our world so anxious? First, relativism, lies, and conspiracy theories. Towards the end of um, the book of John, in John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested and brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and He's trying to wrap his head around what's going on and why these people want to kill Jesus really badly. And, and Pilate asks Jesus who he is and what he's about. Who are you and what have you done is his question. And Jesus answers here in John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I'm sure that's not the answer Pilate really wanted. But Pilate's response, he says to him, look at this, notice this in verse 38. Pilate said to him, quote, what is truth? Thousands of years later, far too many Christians on the internet sound like Pilate. What is truth? This is a posture of relativism. Now, relativism comes in one of four kind of types here, and I'll run through them really quickly. There's some other really smart people who've done much more work than I have on this. But for uh, what we need to understand today, relativism comes in one of four types here. The first is that there is no objective external source or standard for measuring truth or falsehood. There is none. So it's left up to everyone's own kind of whims in the moment, emotions, or a kind of internal moral compass, right? There's no objective external standard or source for measuring truth or falsehood. That's one type. Second type, there may be an external standard, but we really can't know if there is one or not, so we can't live by it. Third, there may be an external standard for measuring truth, but no one can figure it out, what it means, so it can't be a standard because it's too hard, it's too complicated, it's, it's, we can't figure that out. And fourth is, there may be an external standard, but I don't care what it is. Now, as we think about our faith in relationship to relativism, we ask, what is our standard for measuring truth? What is our source of authority for right and wrong, for morality? And we'd say, as followers of Jesus, we'd say God, right? Mediated through the life, person, teaching, and work of Jesus and Scripture, right? This is where we get our authority. We're not making this up as we go along. We look to Scripture as our authority, as our moral compass, as our external standard for measuring truth. Now, why do I bring all this up? Because the question is, if there is no objective standard for measuring truth, anything can be true. It's called subjective truth at that point. It's not objective. It's anything can be true. It's, it's whatever um, suits your desires and preferences at any given moment can be true. Now, there's a whole different uh, line of, of sermons in that respect. Um, but for right now, all I'll say is this creates an anxious world. 
when everyone's defining truth for themselves. There's no common ground. This creates an anxious world because without any objective standard for truth and morality, everything is up for grabs. And our internal equilibrium sways and we're trying to find a version of life that won't offend or will make us happy or won't guilt or shame us or will help explain away the things that are happening in this world. But as followers of Jesus, we don't have to live that way, right? We can live with the confidence that we have the truth. We have objective truth. And his name is Jesus. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about fully committing to that truth and rejecting things like myths and babble and irrelevant talk. A few moments here, Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 2 Timothy 2, 16, 17, 18, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Man, what a weird thing to be called out by Paul in the Bible for, for really screwing up. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. 2 Timothy 2, 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Now, between things like conspiracy theories, political rhetoric, spin, slander, and relativism, fighting for and seeking out truth is more important than ever for the follower of Jesus. Sadly, I see far too many Christians, mostly online, mostly on social media, being duped and fooled, and not only that, but spreading misinformation, spreading lies and slander. Truth should matter to Christians. Because in a world of chaos, confusion, and upheaval, Christians ought to not be giving in to that same anxiety of irreverent, silly myths, irreverent babble, foolish, ignorant controversies, but they should be people of peace and grace and truth. Nothing dispels the darkness of error faster than the light of God's truth. God's word is the truth. The truth we get from God's word endures beyond the rise and fall of cultures, politics, civilizations, and human philosophies, Isaiah 40 tells us. It gives us a foundation of wisdom to rest on. That was the entire series we just spent the the summer in, of Proverbs, wisdom as a foundation for life. And as followers of Jesus, we should be concerned about and fighting for truth in every sphere because at the core of our confession is the truth that Jesus is life. To that end, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12 says this, quote, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. When Paul was writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy, says there's going to be a time when people will not endure sound teaching. We can read, parentheses, truth, objective, real truth, and will have itching ears and believe people and ideas that will suit their own interests in any given moment. They'll turn away from truth and wander into myths. The job of the Christian is to call one another back to truth, back to the gospel, back to the kingdom of Jesus, back to the sovereignty of God, and to display a different way for those who don't believe in Jesus around us. Not to get, like Paul says to Timothy, entangled in civilian affairs, but to set our minds on the things above. Now here's the reality. 
Our hope is not in this world. So whatever thing you or I may be concerned about at any given time, it pales in comparison to where our ultimate hope is. It pales in comparison to eternity with God and the kingdom he is establishing here. And so before we get ramped up about this issue or that issue or whatever, just as a matter of perspective, consider our forever life with God. Suddenly, things like whether the postal service gets funded or not seems much smaller in scale. The November election, whatever QAnon conspiracy theories out there, suddenly all of that stuff gets a little perspective. When we remind ourselves of eternity with God. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Now, being a Christian doesn't mean being gullible. It doesn't mean rejecting the idea that our opponents can do something truly grievous. They can do scandalous things. And it doesn't mean closing our ears to the world around us and just pretending bad stuff doesn't exist. It means addressing claims of wrongdoing with charitable skepticism. It means changing your mind when you're presented with new information and new evidence, not backwardly justifying an old opinion. It means curating our intake, being judicious about our sources, and choosing to believe the best about our neighbors and pray for our enemies. So this first idea that we see with that I see with Christians mostly online all around our world right now, giving into an anxious world is, is relativism, is, is asking the question, what is truth? And forgetting we have the truth. Second, second way our world is anxious and Christians are giving in right now is this idea of cliff noting culture. Now, I don't know if that's like a real thing or not, or just something I kind of made up in my notes here. Um, but it represents kind of two ideas here. And the first idea, cliff noting culture, would be like skimming headlines without actually reading the full story, right? So we read an outrageous headline. We don't actually read the story, but suddenly we become passionate about that headline thing. And we don't actually do the work. We just cliff note the story. But the, the second idea is it's related. It's a little different. Is also like a short-term passion about an issue, so in other words, it's not doing the work, it's not committing to a cause, it's getting giving in to the emotions of a moment or the emotions of a headline and not letting it go any further than that in your life. It's just about staying um, shallow enough just to get worked up and then move on. How many of you are passionate about something that you read about five months ago? Let alone do you still even remember it? Well, here, here's a bit of a test. Open up Instagram if you have Instagram and you can look at your stories archive. What were the stories that you were posting five months ago really passionate about? Maybe two months ago, three months ago, whatever. Are you still passionate about those things? Do you still remember what those are? It's a tough one. Cliff noting culture. I believe it does a disservice to our witness to get worked up about something, to meet the fervor of a moment, and then two weeks later, totally forget about it. Many people were um, really worked up about this Wayfair conspiracy theory thing, and I'm not talking about that, but many people got worked up about it because it brought to light this issue of of human trafficking, child sex slavery, um, and 
A lot of people posted about it. A lot of people got worked up about it. Did you donate any money to Zoe International or Forever Found? Did you volunteer any of your time to help an organization? Have you read any more books, any more studies to make yourself more aware of the issue? No, no guilt, no shame. I, I'm just trying to point to the moment that we're in and how easy it is to fall into that trap. Cliff noting culture. Skimming the headlines without reading the full story or short-term passion about any particular issue. Christians are giving into this. We're called to be committed to the causes of justice, to care for the widows, the orphans, the oppressed, the marginalized, those that have no voice. And it does a disservice to your witness and my witness when we get worked up about a thing for a week and then move on. Third thing here, cancel culture. Like most things we've talked about today, it's largely a byproduct of our unchecked social media addictions. I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy quote, uh, but in a great article by Chris Martin called No Social Media Algorithm Rewards Grace, he says this, quote, Social media platforms has transformed over time to reward mob mentalities instead of civil discourse. Today's social media platforms create conditions that may be hostile to considerate, Christ-like communication. No social media algorithm rewards grace. Encouraging tweet threads aren't shared as much as angry ones. Cancel culture thrives because the reward system and algorithms support mobs, and most mobs are angry. We are more eager to share negative content because fear and anger push us to action more than love. Social media conflict within the body of Christ helps no one because there's no public incentive to resolve it. Until the conflict is taken offline or to a private online space, all parties involved are performing for their followers, whether they think about it or not. No one gets retweets for conceding ground, only for holding it. End quote. So we think about cancel culture. I'll just simply ask this question. As a follower of Jesus... Are we showing the kind of grace that's been shown to us? Hebrews 12, 15 say, says, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You've been shown immeasurable grace. I've been shown immeasurable grace. When you messed up, Jesus didn't cancel you. How are we doing showing that same grace to others? Fourth thing. Relativism, cliff-noting culture, cancel culture. And the fourth is a persecution complex. This is the last one, and it may be one of the more damaging ones at play in our culture right now. Maybe one of the more damaging postures a Christian can take in this time, in this place, is a persecution complex. Now, let me be really clear right up front. We, you may be reading news stories from things that are going on in our county, in our state, whatever, in our time and our place, let me be clear, the church is not being persecuted. Not, not the way you think. Christians in America, and in particular in Southern California, and even more in particular in Ventura County, you are not being persecuted. You're not. You're just not being persecuted. Christians have never had it better than they do in 21st century westernized world, particularly America. Christians have never had it better, ever. Throughout human and, and uh, human history and church history, Christians have never had it better. 
saying that you are diminishes and minimizes the real persecution happening to our brothers and sisters around the world. And it is counter-preparing you for a day when you might actually be persecuted for what you believe. Now, our model has changed and it's been challenged and it's even needed to be put on pause or removed. But the church's model, take for example, gathering indoors, can and should change over time. In fact, the model of church has shifted and changed to meet all kinds of moments throughout history. There's a reason we do not look like the church that we read about in Acts. The model has shifted over time. It should change. It should adapt to culture to bring the message of the gospel to whatever culture that particular church is in. When the church needs to stand up and resist and maybe pursue civil disobedience is when our mission and our message are in jeopardy, not when our model is in jeopardy. It's the wrong fight. Take, for example, our government has asked and instructed that we not meet indoors. Okay, so we pivot. We meet online. We meet together in smaller groups and homes. We meet outdoors, whatever. If our government said, you're not allowed to pray anymore, or you can't talk about Jesus during church, we'd have a problem with that with our message and our mission being challenged. If they said, you're not allowed to tell others about Jesus, that's a problem. And we would have a responsibility to disobey our government so that we can obey Christ. As the government is challenging our model, the church should be the most innovative group of people in the world to say, okay, we've had to do this a bazillion times before. What's next? What's new? God, you created everything. You're the most creative being that has ever been. Give us a little bit of that creativity to reimagine what our model could look like. The church should be the most innovative, the most creative in this moment. But here's the reality, and here's where it challenges us. For those accustomed to privilege, you and I, living in America in 21st century, I don't care how much money you make, what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive in, we are privileged if we look at a global comparison, for those accustomed to privilege, inconvenience feels like oppression and equality feels like persecution. Government's not asking the church to do anything. They're not asking things like malls or concert venues or uh, movie theaters or whatever to do as well. But for those accustomed to privilege, inconvenience feels like oppression and equality feels like persecution. Yes, it is inconvenient not being able to meet like we used to in the building that we were renting. Yes, it's hard to socially distance and quarantine. Yes, Zoom is not great and I'd rather have my community group in my living room than on my computer screen. Yes, this season is hard and we will have all sorts of implications and potentially damaging consequences that we can't even comprehend right now that we're going to have to pick up the pieces to later. Yes, But this is not persecution. Okay, relativism, cliff noting, cancel culture, persecution complex. There are so many other things that are making the world around us anxious. There's so many other ways Christians can be a non-anxious presence. And I'm sure there's even more things that Christians are doing in person or online that we should attack, but, you know, we don't have all the time in the world. So these four things. 
How do we not become that Christian? How, how do we not become that? How, how do we counterform? Or how do we become a non-anxious presence? If we look at the teaching and the example of the life of Jesus, it is by becoming a person of peace. By becoming like Jesus himself. Look at, in John chapter 16, Jesus' words to his disciples. He's talking to them about when he will leave them. And he says this in John 16, verse 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says these things so that we will have peace. Take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. Anthem, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has brought peace. He is peace. And because of his death and resurrection, you and I can share in his peace and become people of peace. Now, how do we live as people of peace? Well, it's been said that we can achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. Meaning when our insides align with our outsides or when our lifestyle aligns with our beliefs. So, to be people of peace means that our life has to reflect our values. Which means, you guessed it, we probably have to change something about our life. Because we have our internal values, we have objective truth, we have the truth of the gospel, we have the life-teaching ministry of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us compelling us to live a life like Jesus. But where we experience that cognitive dissonance is we don't actually live the things we believe. So we might actually have to change. You might have to change. I might have to change. We probably might have to introduce some new habits or change some old habits or remove some habits. That's for next week. This was part one just trying to put our finger on some of what is making the world anxious around us and how Jesus calls us to be a non-anxious presence in the moment of tribulation, chaos, confusion, and anxiety. The next part, which is what we're doing next week, is how do we actually do it? For now, I'll leave you with this line from Jesus, and then I'll pray for you. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Jesus, we ask for your peace. In this moment um, of upheaval, where it just feels like everything about our lives, our family, our cities, our culture, our country are being turned upside down. And as parents are figuring out what to do about homeschooling or distance learning, as people are trying to figure out what it looks like to go back to work, to continue working from home or wrestle with unemployment or layoffs or furloughs, as we're staring down the barrel of not being able to be with those we love in person, 
we ask for your peace. Jesus, you are peace, you have brought peace, and you've called us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. Jesus, help us to be your peace to a crazy world. Holy Spirit, would you help us be a non-anxious presence in a world of chaos, confusion, and anxiety. And I pray blessing for everyone watching, participating today, that your face would shine upon them, your love and care would overwhelm them, and that you would implant in them your peace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.